Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Hello, everybody. We're about to start, so if you'd uh, like to reshuffle, if you thought you were going to sneak an extra coffee, time's up. Take a seat. And we will begin. Because how you start a story and how you end a story affects the story that you are telling. Our story starts in a garden where in the beginning, the most beautiful, benevolent, powerful, and gracious being danced across eternity. This being, this God of three persons, was, is, and always will be united in an infinite relationship of love, sacrifice, and generosity. Everywhere that God went, life spilt out. Creation overflowed like a fountain, unable to contain its abundance. Intentionality, exuberance, and sheer unbridled joy brought all things into being. And over it all, God spoke goodness. It is good. It is good. It is good. The centerpiece of this epic symphony was humanity, infused with the very breath of life itself, made in the image and likeness of God. Man and woman stood at the heart of creation, and all was as it should be creative, dynamic, relational, powerful creatures. Humanity was modelled and moulded on the nature and character of God, able to bless and steward, order and nurture the world around them. There was peace and all was well. This is the opening bookend of our story. This morning, as you've journeyed here, as you sit in Battersea or at Westside, good morning, by the way, as you watch this on home or listen in on the podcast, whether you struggled to get out of the door or whether you're still preoccupied by the remaining urgent things on your to-do list, maybe this morning you're expectant about what God might be saying or doing with you today, or maybe you're distracted by all the other things in your world, I invite you in this moment to simply take a breath. To breathe in the spirit of God, the breath of life that infuses your being and fills your lungs. Take a moment to acknowledge that your story started with peace, with goodness, with love and with joy that no matter what today looks like, your story started well. So Lord, in this moment, as we 
continue our worship, acknowledging your presence in this space. We give you thanks that over us, you declared goodness. That in your creation, there is peace and there is joy. So Lord, we again ask you to help lift our eyes and draw our attention to you and the words that you would want to speak over us in this space and at this time. Help us see you today, Lord, I pray. Amen. So good morning. Uh, I'm Jo. Uh, I am mum to two girls, wife to one husband. I, am, um, I work at the Evangelical Alliance. I do a number of things at that charity. But one of the things that I do is I'm the director of the Being Human Project. There's going to be a theme, and I'm sure you can spot it. Um, good morning to you all on the site, those watching on home, listening in the future on the podcast. Hello. Um, this is uh, a real joy to be with you this morning. This month, we are going to be exploring what it means to be human. Um, I have been working on this for a few years now, and it's because for a very long time, I have had an obsession, an obsession around stories and around habits. We are surrounded by stories, stories that we tell, stories that we live by, stories shape and form us. They shape our beliefs, they create frameworks for how we interpret events, and they create structures for our world, for our navigation, even for our own sense of self. But stories go in hand in hand with habits, the doing of the stuff, acting out the narratives that we inhabit. Stories are embodied by actions, and actions need stories that explain and give them meaning. It is a feedback loop. Um, a few years ago, me and my family moved to France. We lived uh, in the southwest corner of France, just south of Bordeaux. And when we moved there, my daughters were three and five, and they spoke no French. Uh, so we dumped them in a French school um, where they spoke no English, um, and it was an interesting journey. By the end of it, some of you will have heard this story before, by the end of it, my two very different daughters had created two very different coping mechanisms. One was fluent in French. She absolutely nailed it. She was top of the class by the time she left. She'd done brilliantly. The other one spoke not one word of French, but had taught her entire class English. <laughs> it worked. The interesting thing is that story has now become a narrative for who they are. So when um, a Congolese uh, student came into my eldest daughter's class, she sat there and spoke French to her because she knew what it was like to be alienated in a class. And when the Ukrainians um, started coming into the school, she downloaded the Duolingo app and started teaching herself Ukrainian so that she would be able to translate what was going on. That's one daughter, because that's her story. Therefore, that's her habit and her practice. The other one is awful at language and knows this, so doesn't even try, but she knows she can make friends with anybody. 
She can know she can build relationships and cross divides and create community no matter where and when she goes. And she does that everywhere she encounters. These habits and these stories have created a sense of purpose and of narrative of self. Does that make sense? We inhabit stories and stories inhabits us. The narratives of our worlds and our actions have profound effects on how we see ourselves and the world around us. Now, this obsession with stories and habits isn't merely academic. I'm not just paid to do this. I, there's something really beautifully profound about it. Because at the age of 19, I sat in a car park in Skegness, same as everybody, and gave my life to Jesus. Um, I'm sure Sir Ed Ness features in everybody's testimony. It certainly does mine. Anyway, at that moment, I was really hungry for something. And I gave my life to Jesus because in that moment, I heard him whisper into my soul, there is more than, to life than this. Um, we're a little bit ahead on the slides. We should be on slide three, but that's fine. Um, but that might be slide three. Yeah, it is slide three. See, we knew we should have checked the numbers. That's fine. Um, John 10.10 10 is what I'm hoping for. Um, I will give them life in abundance. Life in abundance, there you go. And in that moment, I trusted him. I trusted him that there was a story greater than the story I was living. And it, he has never, ever led me to question that trust. But I have seen a gap. I've seen a gap between that promise and the reality of my world. And I want to know, why is that gap there? And what does discipleship look like as I seek to put my full trust in that promise and see its reality manifest in my life and the lives around me? It is my belief that we become truly, fully, beautifully human as we follow Jesus, as we become like Jesus, and as we do the things that Jesus did. You could put it like this, life in all its fullness, the abundant life is found when we live into and share with others, the biblical vision of being human. But our world is not just the God story. And it's not just the person of Jesus that shapes our humanity. Our world is full of stories that inhabit and teach us what it means to be human. So back to that slide. This is what we're going to dig into over the, week, uh, the few weeks. We're going to explore the God story as detailed across the pages of the Bible that show us that we are made to share in God's likeness and do what he does. We're going to explore some of the cultural stories that swirl around us, some of which dehumanize and deform us away from God's character and likeness. And we're going to explore the model and the invitation of Jesus to live in as part of the new humanity reformed in his likeness. So it's going to be a fun month, and I hope you are ready for the journey with us. So as we get started, let's start with culture and some of cultural stories. We talk about culture all the time. It's one of those buzzwords that never quite gets defined. We have cultural icons, we have cultural moments, we have the culture wars. Very simply, culture is a set of shared stories, habits, and stuff that shapes us. Culture is collective. It is what we do here. It's the unwritten rules. We build and maintain culture together. Simply put, culture is the activity of making sense of our world and how to live in it. 
there are three main stories that currently have the greatest influence in our lives, in our culture in the West here, and here specifically in the UK. Uh, we're going to go into these cultural stories a little bit more over the coming weeks, so this is an absolute Cliff Notes top level. Uh, so for today, just know that there is the secular story. This is the story of uncertainty. 500 years ago, it was unthinkable to not believe in God. Today, it is almost unthinkable, ridiculous, kind of naive, kind of quaint to believe in God. Um, secularism and the story, the secular story, it's not anti-religion. It's not against God. It just thinks that everything should be questioned. Everything's up for debate. Nothing should be blindly accepted. Therefore, all beliefs get more fragile and more contested. Everyone feels pushed and pulled and dragged and, and buffeted by the rival stories of who we are and how we should live. People drift in and out of faith. These days, doubters are tempted to believe and believers are tempted to doubt. Secularism allows faith, but keep it private, keep it personal. If you want to read the Bible, fine, well, that's up to you. But don't bring your ideas into school, into workplace, into politics or into the public life. So that's secularism. The other next story is the story of expressive individualism. There's going to be a few isms coming around. Get ready. Um, this is the story of me, the story of the self. This story tells us that to flourish, to have a good life, I need to know myself and be free to project myself into the world however I choose, however I see fit. As everywhere else gets fractured, contested, more ambiguous, more unsettled, me, the inner self, is the place that I come to for protection and for meaning. Western culture experienced a profound shift during the Enlightenment and the, Rev uh, and the Reformation that said, me, you, the self, is the basic arbiter of truth. I am the captain of my ship and the master of my destiny. We each get to discover, create, or merely choose our identity inside us, and then we are to express it out into the world. We must be authentic and true to ourselves, not conform to society or previous generations or religion on what it imposes on top of us. But this writing of our own script it's incredibly burdensome. You must get it right. You must know yourself, be true to yourself. It is a heavy burden. And many times we see as people go inner, further and further inwards, it's harder and harder to cope with and be resilient to the world around. The third story is the story of postmodernism. This is a story of disruption and deconstruction. You have your truth, I have mine. Everything can be doubted. Everything is personal and everything is perspective, not truth. This sense of doubt rejects any claims that I know what is right, merely what I feel or perceive to be good. The postmodern turn, it black blurs boundaries and instead everything becomes power 
and everything becomes around uh, justice in terms of um, not being oppressed and not being put upon. We must deconstruct and tear down, shake off shackles of privilege or oppression, pull down power structures and institutions that have restricted us or boxed us in. Our moral conversations, the collective conversations, become about power and using our freedom to build a progressive society. But when truth is merely subjective and power is our only frame of reference, something as fundamental as justice doesn't become about truth, but it becomes about a power play. So much of our world, our stories, our habits, the good, the true, the beautiful, all of these things are formed and shaped by these fundamental stories. And they swirl around us, often quite chaotic and quite disordered, as we all have our own personal stories and our micro-narratives. Our habits then struggle to make sense and to form, and we are deformed in the process. But we have the God story, right? And this beautiful, gorgeous, greatest story is amazingly powerful. So why isn't it the loudest story in our culture? Why isn't it the most formative in our space? Why is it that the Christian story sometimes even seems too weak itself to cope with all that life throws at us? Why do others dismiss our story as weak and ineffectual? Have we shrunk our story to be swept along by some of these other cultural stories around us so that we have little to offer? Perhaps we in the UK church have too often failed to share this big God story. The story of creation, full redemption, new creation. Sometimes we share a shrunken, simpler half story, inviting Jesus as the solution to all our problems. He gets to live in our hearts. It's a lovely story. It's the story that focuses on fall and redemption, problem, solution. It's easy to communicate. We're all sinners, but Jesus died and rose again um, so that you can be saved. You have a problem. Jesus is the solution. And although this gospel is true, it's truncated. It's shrunk too small. This half gospel leads to a really individualistic view of salvation. Saving souls going to heaven. But it leaves often us just twiddling our thumbs, waiting to die. It also starts with sin. Problem. It doesn't start where the God story starts. In goodness and in a creation where God is present. And if we don't have an originally good world, then we have no reason to hope for better. The Christian story that William Wilberforce or Amy Carmichael or Martin Luther King needed was a full gospel, not just about saving souls, but about full cultural renewal. We cannot live fully human lives if the Christian story is limited to individual salvation. So this half story doesn't work. So we have two options with our half story. Either we shrink it even further, and we end up with a quarter story of God accepts you, he loves you, crack on. But that quarter story is, is 
so weak, it's nothing. It's not even the gospel in and of itself. It's too shallow to bear the weight of our worlds. What happens when things go wrong? If God just says, yep, you're great. See you later. Actually, the invitation is to go to the nuanced, full, complex story of the God story and find out what it means to be fully, truly human. The God story um, opens in Genesis 1 to 3, which is where I started this morning. It's this beautiful, poetic truth of who God is and who we are in him. It's in these potent chapters that we are introduced to what theologians called the Imago Dei, the image of God. So what does this mean? Well, uh, this illustration, some of you will have heard with me. A few years ago, Putty Putman shared it at uh, the Vineyard Leaders Gathering, um, and I've nicked it ever since. Um, I, like him, have never met the Queen. But also, like him, I am certain, had she ever walked in through the front door of my house, I would instantly recognise her. Um, I wouldn't need to be introduced to her. I wouldn't need a, hi, this is Her Majesty moment. I would know who she was. And I am sure you would have too. Why am I so convinced that we would instantly recognize somebody that we had never met? Well, because we have seen countless objects that bear her image. Coins, stamps, posters, your granny's coronation plates. We have seen her over and over again. And the same is now true for King Charles. I have met King Charles. Well, I say met. Um, he walked past me at a carol service looking entirely in the opposite direction, but I'm claiming it. Um, and of course, again, I knew who he was because I had seen his likeness before. Images on objects bearing his likeness. Like the tea towels of the late queen or the newly minted coins of the king, an image-bearing object means that when we encounter the actual image, we recognize it for who it is. An object that bears another's image isn't actually the image itself. It's not a clone or a repeat. Rather, it's a representation, a reflection, a signpost that points back to the original. Image-bearing objects represent, project, and share in the image's likeness. We are created to be God's image-bearing objects. We come from dust, but we are invited into so much more to represent, project, and share in his likeness, to be like him and to do what he does. In the garden, as God creates, it's all good. But something different happens when he gets to humanity. We read in Genesis 1.26, let us make man, humankind in our image according to our likeness. Or consider Psalm 8. This beautiful psalm that starts with this glorious refrain, O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glories above the heaven. But by verse 4, the psalmist is pondering this profound question. What are human beings that you think about them? 
What are human beings that you would pay attention to them? What does it mean to be human? We have been made a little lower than angels, but we have been crowned with glory and with honor. We are created and we receive the character, the nature and the purposes of God. Like a child resembles their parents, how they look, how they act, the type of character that they have. We have been made to resemble God himself. We are literally God's idols. We are to remind all of creation of God and we are to inspire creation's worship. We have been given authority over the works of God's hands and we are to point all of creation back to the original image. This is the idea of being God's image bearers, the Imago Dei. It is the goodness at the start of our story. It is the foundation, the truth on which our being truly, fully human rests. But every day we encounter the experience of our reality that is broken and messed up. We each bear scars and carry the regrets of what happens when we don't fully participate in the likeness and character of God, when we don't resemble the one whose image we bear. The God story recognizes that almost straight off the bat, things go wonky. In Genesis 3, we read that one day the serpent comes up to Eve for a chat. A conversation flows that sows the seed of suspicion into Eve's mind. Is God truly good? The serpent is subtle. The weapons of the enemy are lies and his battlefield is the mind. He flips God's invitation for life in all its fullness and makes it sound stingy. He doesn't tell Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Rather, he undermines her trust in God, suggesting that God is somehow holding out on her denying her something that she wants and stopping her from living life in all its fullness. Have you ever heard that accusation that God is a killjoy, that the religious life is restrictive and dull, that life is grey with God and that the hedonistic life is the one full of colour and of joy and of fun? This is where that all started, the whisper in her ear that she shouldn't trust God with what's important to her. You can know everything for yourself. You won't die, suggests the serpent. Instead, your eyes will be open and you'll be able to discern good and evil for yourself. The seduction is that we can be the same as God, significant in our own right. We don't have to trust somebody else. We get to rely on ourselves. Eve finds herself doubting the goodness and faithfulness of God. Can God be trusted? Is he holding out on me? Will he let me down? And the serpent capitalizes on that doubt. She takes the fruit and in an instant, everything is changed. Life isn't good anymore. Life is literally cursed. But the mess and the corruption in our world isn't the fatal flaw our enemy desired. 
Before the very act of creation itself, God had a plan to restore humanity's representative nature back to itself. The plan was Jesus. The moment when God became human and shows us the truly, fully human life. Jesus is the truly, uh, is the true image of God. He emptied himself so that he could elevate humanity back to its true image-bearing role. And we're going to see over the coming weeks how Jesus does this and how we look to him. In the life of Jesus, he shows us the image of a good and true God who knows each of us, invites us to know him and to know and make him known. The life of Jesus that shows us the image of a loving and relational God who selflessly and fearlessly loves us and enables us to love others the same. The life of Jesus that shows us the image of a personal and present God who comes near us, becoming like us, so that we may never be alone. The life of Jesus that shows us the image of an active and generous God who invites us to partner with him, bringing order out of chaos, hope in hopeless places, and light in the darkness. It is Jesus who shows us life in abundance. It is Jesus who managed what none of us have ever managed, to know the Father, to love like God, to draw close to the Father, and to bring life out of darkness like he did. Jesus is both the cause of our renewed likeness of God and the model that we follow as we try to live it out. He shows us who God is, who we are meant to be, and shows us what a life lived in obedience with God looks like. Jesus is the human being we were all made to be. And through all that he says and does, Jesus teaches, demonstrates, and then ultimately creates a way of being human for us all. He shows us how to fully, truly bear the image of God. Remember how I said at the beginning how you start a story and how you end a story affects the story that you're telling? Our story starts in a garden, but it ends in a city, a city where life flows like a river, where healing grows on a tree, where the tears are wiped away, where there is no more grief, no more pain, no more death, no more separation, for the old order of things has passed away. Our story ends in a city where God, their people can enter freely to be with their God, who is also their friend. Our story ends with the new humanity, participating in the flourishing of creation fully and completely, a city where everyone is known. Our story may not be finished yet, but we do know, thanks to Jesus, how it ends. With the abundance of life flowing again and the longing in each of our hearts quenched because God makes his dwelling place with us. This is the fullness of our story, the goodness of our beginnings and the beauty of what is to come. And these bookends of our story shapes our lives today, the habits and the practices of our lives, 
the expression of our humanity as we look to Jesus. I'd like to invite the bands to come back on across the sites. And as they do so, take this moment to consider. Maybe today, you just need to simply turn your eyes back to Jesus. To look at his glorious face. To see in him who you were always meant to be. To accept his invitation to participate in his life. Life in all its fullness. Maybe Jesus is asking you to look at him and see who he sees when he looks at you. Maybe today you need to put your trust again in the goodness of God and let go of the doubt that he's going to let you down. Maybe today you need to trust again that your story started well that you are the image bearer of a good God, that even in the mess of your current world, the story you currently inhabit, God delights over you and he invites you to partner with him once again. This is the briefest of introductions into the good, true and beautiful story of our humanity. And we're going to explore these in more depth over the coming weeks. So as I hand back to the teams at Battersea and at Westside, and we close our time here together with the most precious of our habits as we worship, I'd just like to invite you to consider what is God speaking to you in this moment as you seek to bear his image, resemble his likeness, and come once again to the fullness and the goodness of your story. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.